This is episode 147 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Targeted repair in blood, stem, and progenitor cells with Dr. Jennifer Adair. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Before we get to all that, though, are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in upcoming episodes of the podcast? Check out our calendar at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar to find out detailed information about upcoming guests. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu, a professor of law at the University of Alberta, whose research focuses on the ethical implications of novel and emerging biomedical research technologies, and Dr. Steve Zvilvasi. He's a senior director of hematopoietic product development at Stem Cell Technologies. My apologies, Steve. You've got a very difficult but beautiful name. Today, we have a lady with a simple name, Dr. Jennifer Adair. She's from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. She's on the podcast to talk about her research on developing gene therapies that safely fine-tune the DNA sequences of blood stem cells to treat genetic disorders, HIV, cancer, you name it. She's knocking it out. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, for those researchers in Seattle, like our guest Jennifer Adair, we'd like to invite you to check out Science in Seattle. The Science in Seattle website and newsletter are your science for all, oh, your source for all the life science news, events, and jobs taking place in the Seattle area. Check out Science in Seattle today at www.scienceinseattle.com. And now on to the roundup. We're going to start with the heart. You know, last week we talked to Arun Sharma. It was a real delightful conversation. I invite you guys to check that out. But he's a heart guy. He was trained by Joe and Sean Wu took two woos to train this guy. So when I saw an article came out of Joe Wu's lab, I had to play it, you know, and I love the heart. And Joe Wu, he's like the original gangster when it comes to using iPS cells to understand the genetic bases of heart disease and cardiac disorders of all types. And this is kind of the same story. Joe Wu, again, out of Stanford, this is a story about... Uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, okay? So there's a form of dilated cardiomyopathy. It's associated with mutations in lamin A gene, okay? It's called lamin A-related dilated cardiomyopathy. No coincidence. It's an autosomal disorder, autosomal dominant disorder. It's caused by mutations in the gene that encodes lamin A slash C, okay? Either of those proteins... Um, and those usually make up the major component of the nuclear envelope, all right? And l- lamin A-related DCM, or dilated cardiomyopathy, accounts for 5 to 10% of the cases of DCM. And this one, it's, it's unique because it has an age-related penetrance with onset typically between the ages of 30 and 40, okay? That's really young to be hit with, uh, you know, heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy. And... And what's notable about this lamin-A-related DCM is that for a lot of people, you know it when you die from it, 
which is to say like the first sign of it is sudden cardiac death um, are the first manifestations you know so it's bad you're good and then you're dead and you're like oh yeah you had laminate related DCM sorry should have put that in the notes but um you know bottom line there it's this kind of cryptic latent thing that springs up and has a genetic basis and basically you know the the mechanisms that link the mutation in lamin A to the arrhythmia in these hearts is not known. All right, so step in Joe Wu and his peeps over there at Stanford. They, they recruited a huge family, not huge, pr pretty large family cohort of um, uh, the, fa the members of which had a frame shift mutation in lamin A that leads to early tr termination and translation. So it's this, you know, it's autosomal. It, it, in, in when that, you know, doubles up, it's an issue, okay? Um, and they made a lot of uh, patient IPS cell lines from, the, from that family using non-integrative reprogramming methods. That's important. They didn't really disturb the genome. And then they made a bunch of IPS-derived cardiomyocytes using a chemically defined protocol. Again, so very controlled, trying to eliminate all the confounding elements there in the protocols. And what they found, you know, not surprisingly, is the electrophysiological uh, analyses show that the, the mutant IPS cells are cardiomyocytes. They had aberrant calcium homeostasis, and that led to arrhythmias that they could see at the single cell level. Moving on, they do go mechanistically deep to show that PDGS signaling is like overactive in the mutant IPS-derived cardiomyocytes. Um, and if you uh, inhibit that activity of PDGF um, using drugs or, you know, other means, um, you could ameliorate the arrhythmia in the mutant IPS-derived cardiomyocytes, right? So, hey, this is amazing because it's like, okay, now we understand why these people dropped dead a little bit. There's arrhythmia, yeah, not unexpected. But this unexpected, I would say, link to PDGF pathway and the contribution of PDGF, PDGF signaling to the pathogenesis of this lamina-related DCM is big because it, it makes the case that if you can diagnose these people and they don't just drop dead on you, maybe you could target PDGF uh, receptor signaling, specifically PDGF receptor beta, they show, as a, as a target, you know, to try and mitigate, keep you walking around for a few minutes. Um, so, yeah, another one from Joe Wu who's the master of, you know, using IPS cells to understand genetic basis and molecular mechanistic basis of cardiac uh, disorders. And check another one off the list. If you add that lamina-related DCM, it's a good day for you. Congrats. Thanks, Joe Wu. Next, you know, heart attack is fundamentally, if you can survive it, the problem there is fibrosis, right? We've talked about this a billion times. You get the scar, all right? And so this isn't unique to the heart. The replacement or distortion of tissue with collagens and all these other extracellular matrix components, um, it's a common feature of disease, contributes to a ton of deaths in the industrialized world. Uh, and you can get this kind of issue with chronic injury, or if you have like dysregulated wound healing, it can lead to like a pathological healing or scarring, um, which, you know, is fibrosis. 
Um, and, you know, there's other ways you can have, like, uh, chemical exposure can lead to that. Chronically inflammation, chronic inflammation, if you have, like, an autoimmune chronic, you know, inflammation can lead to fibrosis. But in a lot of cases, it's idiopathic, okay? Like, you know, so-named idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The driver is unknown. It's just like, oh, there it is. Kind of like that laminate-related DCM. Oh, there you are, dead. Um, but regardless of, of what the driver is, there's a common denominator with fibrotic disorders. What's that? Accumulation of fibroblasts, yeah. Just like you would think by the name. Um, and a big part of that, in terms of the signaling mechanism for that, a pro-fibrotic cytokine that's been identified you know, a million times over in many studies and many systems is transforming growth factor beta, TGF-beta, which is involved in differentiation of everything. You know, TGF-beta is one of those things that does everything. It has a role in everything. But it's really been identified specifically in this process in, 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 in directing epithelial or endothelial cells or even fibroblasts themselves, like healthy, normal fibroblasts, or parasites in their normal function. It can induce all these and other cell types to so-called myofibroblasts which just runs in there, dumps a ton of extracellular matrix and collagen, dies, and leaves an avascular scar, which is worthless, right? And this process of all those normal cells becoming myofibroblasts is called uh, XYZ cell to mesenchymal transition, okay? EMT, epithelial to mesenchymal transition, endothelial to mesenchymal, it's a mesenchymal transition, right? But the source of the myofibroblasts and all in a range of fibro uh, fibroblasts fibrotic diseases, it's not clear. It's not really well established um, where they come from, okay? But the prevailing view that most people agree on is that TGF-beta and this mesenchymal transition plays a huge part, right? So Harry Dietz, who is from Johns Hopkins University, he and his group, uh, led by David King, Kim, who's also corresponding on this, they were intrigued looking into literature because they're really into EMT, right, or any kind of mesenchymal transition that plays a role in disease processes and fibrosis. And they saw in the literature over and over and over and over people referring to calpanes, okay? Calpanes are calcium-dependent cysteine proteases that cleave a lot of different substrates to regulate a whole range of cellular activities, okay? Everything you can imagine. But it's mediated by the, the, this cleavage, cysteine proteases, calpanes. So they came out with this hypothesis that it's, it's, it's the calpane activity, okay? It's the cleavage products themselves of that calpane, that protease generating products that then are important for mesenchymal transition. And then if you inhibit the calpanes from their protease activity, hey, maybe you got a therapy there, right? So that's what they were looking into. They were working on that hypothesis and what they found that was indeed the ability of TGF-beta to efficiently induce this myofibroblast fate from a range of cells, but epithelial cells, endothelial, or normal quiescent fibroblasts, the ability of TGF-beta to do that is dependent on the induced expression and dimeric activity of calpanes. Okay, so they have to form a dimer and then get active. Um, and then they use siRNA to knock down um, calpanes and show that the TGF-beta induced transition of specifically mouse breast epithelial cells 
you needed this one cow pain, cow pain nine, right? So I said, okay, cow pain nine, that's a good one, boom. We knock that down. Hey, these epithelial cells, they need that activity in order to undergo this malignant transition, all right. Then they knocked out nine, uh, cow pain nine in mice, right? And this was nuts. They're viable and fertile, okay, that's good news. Um, but they're protected against bleomycin-induced lung fibrosis, carbon tetrachloride-induced liver fibrosis, angiotensin-2-induced cardiac fibrosis. So, like, all the fibrosis is on the table when you get this calpain 9 out of the mix, and it seems to be protective. Um, and here's, here's a little kicker. Here's a little kicker that I thought was interesting. Uh, there's a predicted loss of function allele of calpain 9 that's common in Southeast Asia. Next question. Do these people have protection against fibrosis? I'll bet they do. Let's have a look at that. And then let's target the heck out of Calpane and go eat some burgers. Oh, you know, whatever we eat or drink, we need our kidneys to fix it for us. The great filters. The liver, yeah, liver. But the kidneys are, you know, unrecognized champion of the body, I think. So I'd be really interested to see if we could model kidney behavior in a dish using IPS cell-derived organoids. That's what I've been waiting for. Um, and, you know, I was very gratified to see that the wait is over. Yoon Jia, who's in uh, Singapore, also in Singapore with Jia Nifu, who's a co-senior author on this, with the help of our man, Juan Carlos Espizua Belmonte, who's everywhere these days. He just had a little bit, a little bit. He was involved with this just a little bit. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a study. It's about the kidney. It's about kidney organoids. Specifically, it's about kidney organoids that have constituent nephrons. Nephrons. What's a nephron? Well, the nephron is everything in the kidney. It's the working unit. And it's patterned along a proximal distal axis. Okay? So, yeah, when we talk, we've, we've talked about kidney organoids. And we've had guests on that say, yeah, we made some kidney organoids. And they did. They made them. But the current protocols... It, they have a, it's tr they they don't do so good, I'll say. They have trouble reliably coordinating the formation of different renal components. Okay, which is this specifically the renal components, which are the pattern nephron, which is big. Also the vasculature. Okay, the vasculature is a huge part of the kidney, right? It's like the blood goes through the kidney in this filter, like the plumbing there, the vasculature, it's a big component. It's like passively being filtered, but also it's instructive. The vasculature is a big part of everything. And so, yeah, the, the, these kid not surprising. The kidney organoids that have been made, they don't really have uh, to the level that you would like intraorganoid communication between the different components because the components aren't like well-formed, right? So Yun Jia, with a little bit of help from his, from his people there, Juan Carlos and Jia, they, uh, they, made a very robust, highly reproducible methodology for differentiating PSCs into 3D kidney organoids that had segmentally patterned nephron structures and de novo vascular network. Okay, how'd they do it? Well, they got very specific about it. You know, everything in the body is dynamic. Everyone's like, oh, you dump this on it, you dump that on it in order, even. It's not really the way it is. It's like everything is... is 
is you know fluctuating the level so they tried to um, recapitulate that by using this dynamic modulation of wind signaling and that uh, that uh, controlled the relative proportion of the proximal versus the distal nephron segments so you know in order to get the full conformance they had to have balance there um, and not just that but in doing that that led to an appropriate level of this VEGF vascular endothelial growth factor A uh, to create and establish a robust resident vascular network within these organoids. And they showed that it was legit with single cell seek um, and identified, I think this is neat, a subset of nephron progenitor cells that may be a source of the renal vasculature. So there may be like a uh, a vascular progenitor, a kidney slash nephrovascular progenitor, which I would I would love to see because my theory is that every organ has an organ specific vascular progenitor. You know, I just I believe it, so I want to see it. Okay, I'm not going to do the work myself. I'm leaving that to Yoon and his friends. But you know, bottom line, this is big because not only do they have the nephron, they have the vasculature but they undergo further, more refined structural functional maturation when they're implanted in vivo. Um, and then they go to the next level, okay? Because as soon as Juan Carlos gets involved, it's not enough to do a thing. You gotta, you know, grand slam it. They establish this in vitro model of autosomal rece recessive polycystic kidney disease uh, and show that the cystic phenotype can be prevented either by connect, correcting the gene, you know, with like a genetic augmentation type thing, or by simple drug treatment. So yeah, home run grand slam, make the kidney organoid with nephron, with the vasculature, show that it's better, show that it functions, then cure a disease with it. All in a day's work. Very impressive, coming out of Singapore with a little help from Juan Carlos. Um, Next, we're talking about what's big in the field, just generally, clinically. This is a little bit off-piece, but I've been trying to explore some roundup pieces that give another dimension, and I think this one is important, okay? Uh, it's about immune monitoring. This is science. It's very hard science, but it shows that, like, how we, how we can improve the way we bring things um, into the clinic. I think this is a good example of it. It's a Cell Reports resource from uh, Matthew Spitzer and Sean Bendel, who are at Stanford and UCSF. Um, Spitzer at UCSF, Bendel at Stanford, powerhouse team. Um, and what they're, what they're working on is, is these human Im immunotherapies, right? And not just the immunotherapies, but how are we going to monitor them in order to make them advance in the most productive and potent way, robust, get through, get the most information out of them, etc. Um, so yeah, you know, the, the whole immune approach, it's caught fire recently, right? With all kinds of cancer that have not been amenable, not amenable, just traditional chemo has not worked. You know, it's just, we had a dead end with chemo, enter the immuno, immuno approaches, immunomodulatory approaches, and suddenly these things that we haven't been able to make headway on are like a cure for now, at least we'll see how the how that lasts. Maybe talk to Jen about that a little bit today. But, um, you know, these take the form of, you know, the old standard, which is HSC transplantation. That is an immune therapy. You're replacing the whole immune system of a patient in order to 
ablate the negative element and reset, right? But there's also now this, the more recent ones in, in, in uh, more recent years have showed amazing success. The immune checkpoint blockade is one and the adoptive transfer of chimeric antigen receptor, the CAR-T type trials, right? Um, and this is, I mean, we're talking huge amount of trials uh, that could be maximized in their potential or, you know, we could have some some data slipping through there that would be really valuable because there's thousands of these things. Thousands of clinical trials are currently being planned or conducted. All right, so a lot of these trials are actually already monitoring them in a way. They're using immune monitoring. It's established, um, which is you do like a comprehensive phenotyping of all the immune, all the cell types that are present in the in that patient after the transfer, and it helps you to understand the cellular mechani- mechanisms underlying underlying the the new approach, whatever it is, if it's like immune checkpoint blockade or CAR T or even traditional HSC transplantation. Immune monitoring helps you to understand the dynamics of repopulation of blood, obvi, but also with specific therapies and specific diseases, it might show you how they're progressing. You know, if you're having a lot of cytokine release affected related and inflammatory this and that and how the T cells coming back, I don't know. Ask Jenna there. But the um, bottom line is that you can get information from these that will either, you know, can identify signatures, you know, cellular signatures that can then you can use to stratify patients either into risk groups, you know, this person's at risk or that this person stands to benefit the most. You know, you can predict the clinical response, right? So traditionally, like I said, this is in play. They use immune monitoring, but you're limited by how many things you can look at at one time. This is flow cytometry. It's traditionally used, but there's only so many surface factors you can look at at once using traditional flow cytometry, right? Enter uh, what's called cytoff, okay? So this is not uh, flow cytometry, this is called mass cytometry, and it's a hybrid of cytometry and mass spectrometry. And uh, they call it cytoff because it's called, it's cytometry by time of flight. Time of flight is the basic you know, technology that underlies mass spec, right? So using this, you can look simultaneously at many more features. And also the features are really clean. You can combine like tens of different specific factors and like the, the signal, there's no overlap and bleed through in the signal. So it's money, it's super, super tight, the data stream there. So um, the benefit here is that if you can use this mass cytometry, you can get a lot more information for all these trials going forward. You standardize it, you're just pumping out info and it's helping you, like I said, stratify the patient groups. But in order to get there, we need to like create a standard of mass cytometry to be applied um, in order to do that, you got to do a rigorous validation. The CITOFs, they make it sound easy, but you got to take each one of these things on its own. Each factor you look at, you really got to, um, you know, verify and validate before you can get into play. You got to establish the workflow, got to establish the methodologies, right? So, of course, Matt Spitzer, Sean Bendel, they got at it. They established and assessed a reference panel of 33 antibodies okay so this is in parallel you're looking at 33 surface factors that covers major cell subsets simultaneously all right how you know major and how much what's the coverage there well it enumerates more than equal to or more than 98 
98% of the peripheral immune cells. So 98% of the cells that came from that transplant, it identifies 98% of them with uh, up to or, uh, well, four or more positive antigens. So four corroboratory things that set that specific immune cell apart. And this is coverage that's unprecedented. You're doing it all at once with four factors. That's big. So they do that then they, to, to show that it works. They identify stratifying immune signatures in bone marrow transplantation associated graft versus host disease. So they like they show that this approach can elucidate a signature that is very unique to GVHD, right? So, you know, all in, this is a really robust approach and a resource uh, appropriately here in cell reports that I think a lot of people are going to pick up if they're smart and if they have the technology in hand and the resources, they will be uh, subjecting their patient samples to this CYTOF with 33 factors to ensure like a robust immunophenotypic analysis. And to, if you can ap apply this across the board, you'll get a nice you know, comparative basis uh, for, you know, biomarker discovery, defining the efficacy of all these trials that are moving at a rapid pace. If we could get our arms around it with more data on the back end, I think it would be good. I think it would be great. Something not so great I'm going to end with. I'm sorry, you know, but we're going to pick it up when we talk to Jen. She's a real breath of fresh air. So we're going to get optimistic in a minute. But first, let's just, let's just finish with this Zika thing. All right, we were freaking out a couple years ago. Every story, Zika this, Zika that. Yeah, rightfully, Zika, it was, it was a big deal. It is a big deal. But I think, you know, it didn't go away, but there was, it got a lot of attention. And I guess the acute, um, you know, acute phase with Zika infection, you know, in terms of it being widely extent, I haven't heard that much about it this summer until now. Okay, so this is uh, a story that came out of Karen Nielsen Sains, who's at UCLA, and I'm guessing that's first author, uh, senior author is Maria Elizabeth Morela, who's uh, in Rio at Brazil. I think you know positioning there it reflects the uh, Maria. I think had the patience. Karen had something at UCLA that Maria needed. Um, so this is a follow-up. In in it was 2015-16 that the Zika virus epidemic uh, spanned in, in Rio. And at that time, you know, they, there was a lot of analysis that was done that looked at how many, the, what was the frequency of the microcephaly and what was the, you know, term and all that stuff. A lot of statistics at term. But at that time, um, Marie and Karen, they established a prospective cohort of pregnant women um, who had been verified as being infected with Zika they reported the fetal ultrasound and described the gestational infant outcomes for a bunch, yeah. But then, after they had all reached completion, which was uh, December 2016, all those pregnancies had come to term or had terminated, um, that's when they started the clock and looked at follow-up. They were looking at neurodevelopmental results obtained from the children uh, from these births, aged 7 to 32 months from that same cohort, okay? Uh, and that was in 216 infants. They look at neurodevelopmental outcomes um, after, you know, they confirmed Zika virus infection. And it's sad. I mean, of course, 
if it's microcephaly in a healthy chunk of patients, the hope is that like if you don't have the microcephaly manifesting, you like you're through, right? And maybe that you're gonna you're gonna not be affected downstream. But uh, that's not that's not what happened. The fear is that it's all on the spectrum, and that these patients who don't have the overt microcephaly or overt complications of Zika virus, that there is still going to be some neurodevelopmental delays there. And it's what you think. It's below average neurodevelopment and or abnormal eye or hearing assessments noted in 31.5% of children. That's between 7 and 32 months of age. Language function was the most affected. 35% of uh, 146 children that were tested for language were below average. That's, you know, a lot more than you would expect. Um, one note, uh, uh, one bright note is that improved neurodevelopmental outcomes were noted in female children, in term babies, in children with normal eye exams, and in mothers who, who were infected later in pregnancy. So th- that's reasons for optimism, you know? If it's a she who was born a term, can see regular, whose mom was infected late, less risk but across the board it's not looking great for the babies affected with zika who escape the overt complications microcephaly etc the trajectory neurodevelopmentally for them is uh, a challenge so we need to keep our eye on these patients for sure and i'm sure you know when as the field progresses i have a feeling that you know the way the field's going generally i would have been skeptical a while ago but i feel like people are going to try and mitigate these complications by targeting the sequelae of the Zika virus infection either in utero or at birth. So I, I feel like now that we've identified the issue, maybe we can get after it. All right, that's the roundup. And you know, now before we get to the interview, I just want to uh, talk about gene editing. Generally speaking, our guest is a gene editing maestro. Um, and I bet she'd agree that gene editing stem cells works best when you're confident in the cells you're editing. You know what I'm saying? So you need to make sure your cells are still hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells by using stem span SFEM2 medium. That's made by stem cell technologies. Can you believe it? You should use it in your research if you want to make sure your hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells are still hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. Okay? And then you target them. You shoot them back into the patient, and we're all dancing in the streets. You should find out more by visiting stemspan.com. And now, on to our interview. All right. Today we have for you Dr. Jennifer Adair, who is assistant member in the clinical research division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Dr. Adair's lab is focused on developing gene therapies that fine-tune the DNA sequences in uh, blood stem cells in order to treat genetic disorders, HIV, cancer. The goal there is to develop safe and cost-effective, clinically relevant applications for gene therapy that can be implemented worldwide, and the emphasis there being worldwide. We're going to talk about that later. Jen, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the pleasure's ours. Why don't you start by giving us a uh, overview of uh, the research focus in your lab, if you will? Um, sure. So my laboratory began actually um, with a mission to 
translate uh, blood stem cell gene therapies for um, cancer in particular, um, and then quickly started building more trials in our portfolio that ranged over a broader number of diseases. Um, this was you know, back in 2008 to about 2012. Um, from cancer, we went to genetic diseases and then uh, eventually to human immunodeficiency virus infections. And as I was um, structuring, you know, what it takes to get blood stem cell gene therapy from the bench to the bedside, there are caveats for each of those different diseases, even though the general concept is the same. You would take patient-specific blood stem cells out of that patient's body, genetically modify them for a therapeutic purpose in relation to that particular disease you're treating, and then you infuse those cells back into the patient. Um, sometimes after you prep the patient uh, with some conditioning to make the stem cells take, uh, sometimes without. Um, but there were just tons of nuances uh, across those different disease categories that were their own challenges. Um, in general, that whole process was just incredibly complicated, um, required just really sophisticated uh, facilities and highly trained staff. And, you know, I kept thinking to myself, um, if any of these things works, it's going to be a nightmare trying to get this to millions of people. Hmm. Um, it's going to be a nightmare trying to get it to hundreds of people. And especially when we started working on the uh, gene therapy to treat HIV, it really struck home for me. This is a disease impacting 30 plus million people worldwide, and the majority of them don't live in resource-rich regions of the world. And so I was thinking about how I could take these processes that we were developing and make them portable, more cost-effective, um, thinking, you know, this is something where the ultimate goal needs to be taking blood stem cell gene therapy into the patient or to the patient wherever they might reside in the world. Um, and that, having that big question in mind, uh, big goal in mind, um, I quickly realized that I was going to have to not be strictly chemistry or biochemistry or cell biology lab, um, but rather uh, a lab that was willing to embrace any scientific, scientific discipline or technology that would get us toward that goal. And so it's pretty broad. <laughs> yeah, you talk about broad. I mean, <laughs> let's let's drill down there a little bit on the numbers. Uh, I don't know if you have these numbers at hand, but you mentioned there uh, HIV alone, 30 million plus. And, and people talk about like hematological malignancy or hematological disorders. And I think maybe they're, they're thinking of the, the cancer or whatever, you know, anemia that is that is relevant to them or that they've heard of but this is there's a very broad scope uh for this the treatments that you're talking about we talk uh, talk a little bit about not just you know locally nationally but globally kind of the prevalence what kind of diseases are we talking about are we talking about you know treating like malaria even or is that kind of outside the scope G give us an idea of what kind of falls within the uh, the purview of these therapies that you're you're developing. Um, it's actually really broad. Um, I'm not sure you can quote me on the exact number, but the last time I checked uh, clinicaltrials.gov, which is the public web 
site where you can see any or search for any clinical trial ongoing. Um, if you search for uh, gene therapy and hematopoietic stem cells, um, there's more than 80 different diseases that come up in, in the three general categories of infectious disease, malignancy, and um, inherited disorders. Um, there are primary immune deficiencies, um, there are anemias, there are red blood cell disorders. Another example that's in the focus a lot right now is sickle cell disease. That's another disease impacting tens of millions of people where you have this um, genetic prevalence uh, in areas where malaria is also prevalent um, because patients with mutated hemoglobin have a natural resistance to malarial infection. Um, which brings a whole other set of factors in play uh, when we talk about gene therapy. How do you, you know, make sure you get enough uh, gene therapy to correct a hemoglobin disorder without compromising resistance to malaria infection? Because mm -hmm. then you're just creating another problem. Um, but it's it's pretty broad. There, there's hematologic malignancy. Um, you know, in theory, blood is not necessarily stem cell, although you could target stem cells for things like T cell therapies later. Um, they could provide lifelong supply of genetically modified T cells to fight specific malignancies. While it's primarily in hematologic malignancies right now, um, you know, every day many groups around the world are getting closer to being able to treat solid tumors uh, mm. with those approaches. Yeah, you mentioned solid tumors. What about outside uh, the blood or outside of cancer? You know, a lot of excitement I know it was was surrounding treatments for like cystic fibrosis, for instance, you mm -hmm. think you could, you know, inhale something into the lungs and then that would traverse and, and, uh, you know, be able to treat the disease in that way. Is, is, is that still alive? I know there was a bit of a recession there following a bit of some fiascos with therapy and some, some, um, unintended consequences of kind of black mark in the field, but, but, you know, it, there's been a reinvigoration. Is that, is that also applied to, to genetic therapies outside of the blood, like cystic fibrosis and others? I know it's not your specialty, but can you speak to that? Right. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, at least in my opinion, I don't think any disease is off the table. There, they may be, there may be lulls where barriers to the success of gene therapy towards a particular disease um, need more careful thought and effort to overcome. Um, but I think that the field is just really um, experiencing an incredible amount of growth. Um, the first three FDA approvals, um, you know, beginning in 2017, have really launched a huge biotechnology uh, focus on what gene therapy can do, what those markets will look like. That generates a lot of excitement and interest. And then um, you have scientists who weren't gene therapists or not interested in gene therapy, but were working on other problems in other fields um, that now start to see where maybe some of the things that they're developing can be applied to overcome some of these issues that are being described in different gene therapy fields. Um, muscular dystrophy is another one, mm. um, you know, that people talk about. And then there's a whole series of, um, you know, central nervous system diseases that uh, people are trying to focus on as well. But I, I would say no disease is off the table as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of uh, accessibility, right? And and that's your major push. You know, this isn't your first time on the show. Last time you were on, you were talking about your your semi-automated closed system for manufacturing 
uh, lentiviral modified hematopoietic stem cells. And the real thing there was that, you know, with less than half the staff in a portable system, the idea being that this is something that you could set up. You know, you could have a pop-up shop essentially globally anywhere in these kind of underserved territories. And now, you know, your new work, which I'll let you elaborate on, which was just in Nature Materials, is a similar kind of idea. Although, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning of the show, it's kind of, you know, the first maybe was a more engineering approach. This is more of like a materials approach. You're all over the place with the (laughs) common theme there being accessibility, bringing it to these underserved areas. Talk about your your recent work with this nano formulation that you've come up with. Uh, and how you're you're trying to meet that end of you know global accessibility of of these you know newfangled gene therapies. Sure. So um, the impetus for this new research actually came uh, probably just before our last podcast together. Um, you know, when we published the semi-automated um, gene therapy in a box, if you will. Um, my idea was, yeah, the pop-up clinic, that would be great. And then the first thing that pretty much slapped me in the face <laughs> right after that was we'll never, in my opinion, be able to make enough engineered lentivirus to treat tens of millions of people. It's mm-hmm. going to take a really long time or just an in- incredible effort in improving the efficiency uh, and quality of those viruses to have enough to treat that many patients. So I initially started thinking about, um, you know, what could we do to get around the need for an engineered virus particle? And I'll I'll back up really quickly and say, you know, there are lots of companies and groups working on this, and I think that they're making good strides. Um, The difficulty lies in the fact that you want an engineered virus to maintain its ability to transmit new DNA into a cell permanently, but you don't want that to come with a risk of infectious potential. You want it to be a one-time use virus particle. And those particles also have packaging limits. Uh, You can't throw as much therapeutic DNA in there as you want. Um, They have certain size restrictions where they start to become even less efficient to produce. So as you think about what therapy do I need to deliver for which disease, you have to craft that engineered vector specifically for that approach. And then we still don't have the capability to synthetically manufacture one-time use virus particles. We need living cell systems to assemble those virus particles for us. And then we have to purify those particles back out of the cells. So this is something where I started thinking, okay, I just need to think about what what are the bonuses of viruses? Um, you know, once you have sort of an engineered viral platform, you can, to a certain extent, mix and match what therapeutic genes you want in there, um, as long as they fit within the size constraints. Um, and if you have a living cell line that will make that engineered virus, then that, you know, you can produce those, um, even though it's not super efficient. Um, and once us, you know, once you add viruses to cells in a dish, the cells will take those virus particles up passively. Um, so it doesn't require you to do anything really crazy to the cells other than just kind of pipette the virus in. Disadvantages, in addition to the efficiency of making large quantities, um, include that you, you can get some response, like, hey, the cells recognize that they're seeing something like a virus particle. Um, that can sometimes cause some toxicity 
um, in the cells, and we we can't control where the virus is going to deliver its genetic payload. So I was thinking about this, saying, okay, I need to to make something synthetic that is um, customizable across different gene therapy, you know, disease targets um, that can just be added to a dish and taken up passively by cells. Um, and if I wanted to improve upon the current platform, I, you know, it should be synthesizable in a really short period of time with a lot of flexibility in the scale of manufacture. And if I can control where it's going to insert its genetic changes into the DNA of the cell, prove on the safety um, as well. And so, I mean, I'm certainly not the first to think of nanoparticles in this capacity. Um, there are many groups who are looking at this. My focus really came in wanting to do this for blood stem cells. Um, and we tried uh, actually with a, a collaborator um, looking at different polymers um, or polymer-based nanoparticles initially and some preliminary work in that um, we just weren't uh, seeing a good cell response. Um, we decided to focus on CRISPR as a means to deliver genetic changes because of the ability to customize it for different areas of the DNA. Um, and that sort of gave us the flexibility in different disease targets. Um, we then switched to nanoparticles um, that were based on metal cores. Um, and in particular, I just completely out of serendipity got an email from you know a postdoc who was or I should say a PhD student who was finishing uh, at the University of Hastepe in Turkey. And he said, you know, I um, have some background in veterinary medicine and I've been studying gold nanoparticles to deliver RNA for the treatment of breast cancer. And I'd be really interested in seeing if this is something that would be applicable in the gene therapy field. And this is right around the time when we were getting back our first polymer data and it wasn't looking that great. So I started doing some diligence on gold nanoparticles. Um, and in particular, if we want to deliver CRISPR, um, we have lots of evidence to suggest that blood stem cells prefer that to be delivered as a ribonucleoprotein complex. So a, a nuclease protein, um, such as Cas9, uh, with the RNA guide attached. And so you already have the issue of you need to be able to deliver RNA and protein to different molecule types with the same particle. And then if you want the change that you're making to be really precise, you need to deliver a DNA template um, that the cell can copy to really precisely edit the code in the area that you're targeting with your CRISPR-Cas9 RNP. And um, so now we need to be able to deliver RNA, protein, and DNA. And so I had a couple of web conferences um, with Dr. Shabazi, who was the grad student who reached out to me. And we, over about a month period of time, and I think three or four Skype conferences, came up with an idea for how we could potentially load all of those components onto a gold nanocore. Mm. And so um, this unfortunately uh, occurred in the uh, fall of 2015. And so, um, or sorry, in 2016. And so uh, I was basically making the decision to bring him over um, right around the same time that the travel ban was issued. Oh, man. Um, in fact, I think his visa appointment was two days before the travel ban was announced. Mm. Um, and so he was declined entry into the U.S. for quite some period of time. So we lost uh, about 
uh, six months fighting that battle um, to bring him over. Um, but then, uh, you know, once he got here, um, we just kind of threw all our eggs in this basket and said, let's just see if in, you know, six months to a year, we can have kind of the milestone of will this work or will it not? Um, so the first step was, can we even make this what we call fully loaded nanoparticle, something that can deliver CRISPR, RNP, and a DNA template? Um, and we wanted it, again, to have that customizability across platforms. There are a lot of nucleases, not just Cas9. There are base editors. There's uh, CPF1, which we talk about in the paper. Um, I think there are lots of different groups looking at these things. Um, one of the, you know, things we thought about in the design was we want to make a nanoparticle that someone can just essentially incorporate any nuclease that they're interested in to the synthesis um, without having to change the chemistry or how it's put together. Um, based on the charge of gold nanocores, the surface chemistry is um, pretty easy to create covalent modifications with thiol groups. Um, we knew that others had modified RNA guides uh, on the three prime end um, to facilitate their retention in cells or their performance. So we added uh, a thiol modification to our RNA guide and put that on the surface of our gold, um, which gives us the flexibility to just incubate whatever nuclease we want to bind to that guide uh, with the nanoparticles in solution and the RMP forms naturally on the surface. Um, that then got us to the point where we said, okay, now that we've, we've got that platform and if somebody wants to just create cuts in the DNA in specific places, that's you know, sufficient to do that. Um, but if we want to add template, we have to figure out how now to get DNA added to this complex. Um, the issue we had is that nanoparticles with RNPs are pretty negatively charged and DNA is pretty negatively charged. Mm -hmm. So those two will just oppose each other. Um, so we added a, uh, polyethylenamine, PEI uh, cloud, we call it. Um, essentially low molecular weight PEI is really positively charged polymer. Um, it naturally wants to form a halo around that RNP-coated nanoparticle because it's negatively charged. Um, and if we use branched low molecular weight PEI, it creates these little positively charged spikes that stick up that the DNA template just wants to bind to naturally. So this was our idea and uh, Fortunately, worked. <laughs> um, we were able to make the the nanoparticles. Um, then there's a whole different set of issues you come up with. So um, you want you want the nanoparticle solution to be uniform. You don't want there to be some that are really big and some that are really small. Some that only took up RNA guides. Some that only took mm. up RNP. You know, didn't take a PI. So we have to test what's called the monodispersity um, and and size and also the charge of the overall overall particles. So that was, it was fun for me to learn um, these new techniques uh, alongside with uh, Risa um, and thinking about what, what are the optimal conditions we need uh, for blood stem cells in particular. Um, yeah, it's, so ama it's amazing to hear you talk about it. Sorry to interrupt, but just because I think the assumption is when you're not schooled in this is that you read the paper, you're like, yeah, they must have just like had because you hear about like libraries you're like oh they have a library with a ton of stuff and then they just throw <laughs> it all on each of those one things and then they throw it on cells and say oh this looks like a good nanoparticle this looks like a but it's not that way there's this whole rational design element especially in this case 
where you need to like have this versatile nanoparticle that can be modular and accommodate a lot of different uses um, that you have to kind of pre figure all the components that'll allow it to, to serve all those roles. So, I mean, just in terms of you just, you started by talking about how, of course, there's a lot out there with Lenti and that kind of matured therapeutically. There's a lot of trials that are using Lenti and Safe Harbor. I think we've reached a threshold of safety at least, but like you talked about maybe the efficiency or, or the, whether or not that's a practical or pragmatic solution in all patient groups, um, may not be the case but uh or may or may not be the case but the 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 fact that you moved on to CRISPR I'm sure it's not because Lenti is is not going to work but do you think that a lot of people are moving away from Lenti in favor of CRISPR is there any reason why is there anything that Lenti can do that CRISPR can't do that you see that you know there's still a very strong place for Lenti in the therapeutic landscape not just because it's ahead but because it, it'll be superior ultimately to alternative, more uh, novel, I guess, you know, technologically new in the last 10 years approaches like CRISPR? Or do you think CRISPR and, and maybe future technologies like it will ultimately displace lentivirus from the therapeutic landscape? I, I think that um, I am, you know, a, a person who believes that we need to have as many tools in our belt as possible. Um, I think that there's going to be a, a place for Lenti, um, you know, especially in diseases where it's already having a really significant therapeutic impact, where you don't run into issues with the payload, you don't have gigantic patient populations that you're trying to, to hit, mm. um, and we're getting really good therapeutic response. The onus there on any other approach, whether it's CRISPR or, or Talens or Megatiles or any of those things, is going to be to achieve the same therapeutic bang for the buck with a demonstrated, you know, mm. safety or feasibility increase that makes that margin worth crossing. Um, but I'll think go it's, back it's to, like that. Do you think it's like, okay, well, you got to show better than we've come so far with Lenti. Now we've done all this due diligence, poured millions and millions and millions of dollars and effort into this. Now, in order for us to switch horses, you need to get CRISPR up to a point where it's better? Or is there like a long game view like, well, you know... I think it has to be as good as. It has, it has to, to be, be as good. It okay. has to be as good as, and then it has to have, you know, um, either a better safety profile or, um, you know, a, a, an improvement in the cost to manufacture, cost of goods, you know, in order for it to take the place of but for diseases where lenti is really doing a good job right now mm -hmm. there's a lot of disease candidates that haven't even been touched yet there's you know plenty where that therapeutic efficacy still has room for improvement mm -hmm. um but you know i i will also say um the issue you know i i talked about this earlier um you know, the first realization for me after the semi-automated gene therapy in a box was that it's really inefficient to make enough virus to treat these diseases that have really large global populations. But then there was another one where I just, you know, um, have to admit, like I was super naive in thinking about this. It's a great idea thinking about these resource poor regions of the world to make an assumption that people in those parts of the world can 
come to a clinic for a week to have cells collected, to have them processed ex vivo, mm-hmm. to possibly need to receive some conditioning is just, it's not feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we really need something that we can develop that is going to be accomplished in a single office visit. And that's if we can get them to the clinic for one visit. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be short, it needs to be efficient. Um, it can't require multiple visits. It can't require a lot of supportive care, can't require those things. And this is where I think lentivirus is not going to get us there. At least there, there are, I don't want to say, I mean, there's lots of groups that are working on ways to administer lentivirus or, or other viruses, AAV, other things in vivo. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be immune reactivity issues that we have to, to deal with. Um, and, I will also say that, you know, I think Lenti has been safe for a lot of diseases. We haven't seen the same kind of early development of malignancy, like with gamma retroviruses that were observed. Mm. Um, but we're still in the first like 10 to 15 years of follow-up. Yeah. And a lot of these patients are kids who have to live the rest of a lifetime. Um, I think, you know, I, I really strongly hope that there's not a late in life um, development of malignancy as a result of the therapy. And for many of these diseases, the risk to benefit ratio is still in favor mm-hmm. of the treatment. And I think that's something people really need to think about, too. Um, but what but I'm hearing can... is that it's, you know, it seems inevitable, right? It's kind of like these CAR T trials where you have a miraculous success and remission. But like, isn't everyone just waiting for the other shoe to drop? One or more of these patients has to have a recurrence, right? It's inevitable. And similarly, with Lenti or CRISPR or whatever it is, whatever the modus is, isn't it inevitable, especially when we're talking about getting the treatment to these millions that may benefit from it? Isn't it inevitable? It's just a numbers game that some of them are going to have these, you know, unfortunate uh, outcomes related to the treatment. And like you said, the risk benefit is still very much favors the treatment, but don't you think it's risky given the optics, the, the scrutiny? How do we avoid, you know, miring the, the field generally in these, in these single outcomes that are inevitable? Do you have any ideas about that? I mean, I think we, we have to not forget, right? Um, what did happen and why we know about why it happened. And we have to think about those scenarios um, going forward and everything that we develop and all of the follow-up that we we do. Um, you know, I think it just has to be an ongoing conversation. I, I'm sort of, as you were mentioning this, I was kind of reminded of this quote and I'm really kicking myself that I can't remember who said it. Um, and uh, it's something to the effect of like, I'd, I'd rather um, spend my life uh, or live my life believing that there's a, a God only to die and find out there isn't than to live my life as if there isn't only to die and find out there is. Um, and I think that's kind of the philosophy I have in this. Like I'd rather be developing these therapies thinking that things can go wrong and trying to make sure that we're thinking about the next safer thing. I, I might not need to, and I hope that I don't. Um, but the truth is there are a lot of diseases where you know, we don't have a lentivirus option right now, or do we really need to use a lentivirus to randomly insert a large piece of DNA when a very small, precise change to the genome that we know is already uh, present in the human population and tolerated 
mm. could be the therapeutic answer. Mm. Um, and I think we have to be, you know, just having those conversations and thinking about these things. Yeah. Quote by uh, Albert Camus, I think, is what it is. Yeah. It's coming up on, yeah. my, on my screen there. <laughs> um, that's a nice quote. I believe that. And I'm on board. <laughs> I don't want to get burned. Um, so just, I mean, kind of shifting gears, but not really. The, the, the big thing with CRISPR and any kind of corrective genetic therapy, especially salient nowadays, the idea of the germline mutation. Uh, what is your opinion on that in terms of, you know, risk is there a hematological malignancy that can be addressed prenatally or or you know neonatally that may lead to some kind of germline mutation or is it just kind of it's not for you to, to really weigh in on um you know i'll say that um i i'm firmly uh in the camp that we don't know enough about germline gene editing to be trying this um you know, in reference to, uh, you know, what what happened in um, with Dr. He earlier, um, I guess in the academic year later in 2018, um, you know, we talked about risk versus benefit ratio. I don't think we have a disease yet where the potential risks associated with germline gene editing outweigh the, or don't outweigh the benefit. Hmm. We don't know what the benefits could be, and there's so many risks in trying to do this in the germline that we're just not there yet. Um, I'm not really, you know, I guess interested in weighing in on the should we be doing research on this or should we not be doing research on this because I, I just don't know enough about the disease candidates for mm -hmm. germline gene editing where this would be. Uh, I just don't feel like I have enough knowledge base to have rational arguments about that. I, I will say though that you know this is something we also think about all the time. Um, I explained to you earlier why I think we need therapies that are accessible in resource limited parts of the world, but essentially as we create these quote unquote like DIY mm -hmm. gene editing, we open the door for people to do unethical um, things uh, with these technologies. And so it's a conversation we have to keep having about, you know, risk to benefit ratio, carefully weighing whether or not the risks associated with these approaches can be outweighed by the potential benefit to the person that they're being administered to. And that just always has to be part of the conversation going forward. I don't think we should not develop these technologies, um, but I think we have to keep a mindful eye on really careful consideration of how they're applied. Yeah, I mean, you may not have the, uh, I guess it's not your specialty in terms of germline editing for hematopoietic, whatever. But you've certainly come up in, in your field in the era where there ha the ethics have been kind of mo a moving target, you know, with embryonic stem cells in particular. We of this generation of scientists, I think, are acutely aware of the maelstrom surrounding the idea even of embryonic stem cells, which very much kind of just went away with IPSL development. Of course, there's still plenty of controversy surrounding that, but it's more like cultural and not so much in the scientific sphere as much. Do you think there's ever going to be, I mean, this is total, you know, offhand speculation. It's kind of a silly question. I apologize. But like, I wonder if this, we're living in this whole era of the, the ethical maelstrom surrounding germline editing. 
Is it going to be a matter of like just someone showing how amazingly beneficial it can be for XYZ disease? And everyone's going to be like, oh, okay, I'm on board. Or do you think this is something that, you know, there's going to be a kind of line in the sand on germline editing that's going to keep moving the more we know, you know, in a more conservative light? Or is it like it's just a matter of optics? Once we cure something, everyone's going to get on board. What's your what's your say there? I mean, I, I, I don't think any, any time there's sort of a cultural shift where someone does one thing positive and everyone jumps on board, I always am like hesitant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, and this is coming from someone who's now on the CRISPR boat, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I totally see the irony in that. Uh, but, you know, for me, there's always like a moment to take pause mm-hmm. and really look at what are we doing here? What does it mean for for patients? Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, if I could if I could direct <laughs> this, if it if it were all up to me and I ruled the world, I guess I, I would like to see the more conservative approach where we, you know, develop really solid research questions and programs and really meaningful disease targets. Uh, and we kind of carefully explore what are the possibilities there. I mean, genetically modifying blood stem cells on a patient-specific basis with gamma retrovirus vectors led to you know, the development of malignancy in 20% of the patients in five years. Um, and that was a hematologic malignancy that we could anticipate because we controlled which tissue mm-hmm. was getting that genetic modification. Um, think about that on the scale of the body. It requires so many different specialists, um, you know, people in lots of different physiologies and fields coming together to really, really carefully evaluate what's happening in every organ system. Mm-hmm because that's what's required when you start at the germline. Yeah, wow. It's a real issue. It's a real issue at the center of science right now. Another issue uh, that's really at the center of culture and science is, uh, you know, the gender inequality and inclusiveness and representation. Um, And, you know, in reference specifically to an article that was in the New York Times a couple months ago that was about... uh, a kind of lack of inclusion, a hostile work environment towards female professors at um, Salk. Uh, and you wrote a piece in uh, the, uh, sorry, which was it? You wrote a piece in Human Gene Therapy that was about sexual harassment in science. And, you know, I thought you could offer a unique perspective as a young female scientist. This article in the Times was about how kind of historically and as you escalate to the higher level, there's a, a, an unequal representation of women in science at the you know, professor level and with regard to funding allocations and kind of protection and promotion from the, from the university. But as a, as a young scientist, I think it's another question, which is like whether or not the system's kind of stacked against you and your ability to rise within the system and obstacles to your uh, ability to succeed. What, what's your take on both, you know, where we are now, are we, are we moving in a, in a direction in your relatively short scientific career, um, having traversed, you know, from the beginning all the way to, to the highest level, 
for your age, of course. What, what, what do you, have we gotten better? What's it like now for a young woman in science at the professor level? Well, um, you know, without, I think, the perspective of women who are, you know, from an earlier generation, um, I think it's difficult to say, you know, what, what fueled the piece in human gene therapy actually was, it was initiated by my co-author on the piece, Terry Flott, um, at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And Terry is the, the um, editor-in-chief at gene ther- human gene therapy. And, you know, he uh, and I have worked together on a, um, a couple of different initiatives for that journal where, where I serve also as an associate editor. And um, Terry, you know, and I had been talking about this um, AAAS report that was conducted in 2018 on the status of gender disparity in the sciences and medicine. Um, so this is a report that came out, I think, in uh, December and it was conducted by a, a panel of scientists, and they basically just highlighted, you know, that um, if you look at the statistics, what get, what gets reported, um, nothing has changed really in 40 years mm-hmm. across these two fields. And so, rather than than dwell on that, they said, let's really take a hard look at how our fields are structured and why it creates essentially this place where change is incremental or super limited. Um, and, and importantly, I would say, you know, their, their highlighted point was um, when multiple fields or disciplines were reviewed, um, gender disparity and sexual harassment were most prevalent in the military, um, but science and medicine were second. Hmm. And so thinking about, okay, just what are the basic characteristics of these fields that make it possible for that to be the case and things like you know um this idea of you need to kind of depend solely on your mentors and advisors creates a really strong power differential um you can have lots of collaborators that write you good letters but if the person that you studied your you know graduate thesis with doesn't write you a good letter of recommendation, you're, you're going to have problems in this field. Mm. Um, moreover, you know, once you, you get your PhD, you have the same relationship with your postdoc PI, and then you're relying on that for a faculty position. Um, and then within the field that you study, there are certainly key senior people that can very much control dialogue if something, you know, unfortunate is to happen. And so, there's a lot of isolation and there's a lot of power differential that we have established as the dogma for how we have a successful career in science. Um, we do have to think about this is this is why not having diversity at the upper echelon positions in the field can create problems, not because people necessarily maliciously want to exclude others, but every person on this planet has some unconscious bias. Mm. They don't know that they have it, um, but it, you know, renders these thousands of micro decisions that influence where things go. And this is something that we really have to think about in the scientific field. There is absolutely a disparity in um, not just gender, um, but diversity across, you know, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all of these things that needs to be thought about um, in terms of creating what we would call a quote unquote diverse 
uh, upper echelon. Um, you know, this was immediately followed by reports that women getting their first NIH grant uh, get, you know, less funding than male counterparts at the same level. Um, there was another paper very recently that showed a very large gender disparity in publication records. Um, women uh, PIs are much less likely to get their papers published um, on the same time frame or at the same caliber of journal than men PIs at the same uh, place. And it's not about, in my opinion, it shouldn't be about you know wagging our fingers and saying, you know, you guys, look at what you're doing. Hmm. It should be about saying, hey, this is happening. Let's talk about how can we improve this? Why is it happening? Um, let's start talking about how we can make shifts in this um, to get it onto an even playing field. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm stuck a bit on the, the first stat you said, that the first is the, the military and then it's medicine <laughs> and science. And it strikes me that, like, that, the, that it's the, the system, it's institutionalized in the military. It's so deeply entrenched. You could even argue that it's like fundamental. It's like the idea of the military is built on this structure that then has, you know, these sequelae. But like, if you change the structure, then the military would be ineffective. I bet there's a lot of people in the upper brass and military. They're like, yeah, we know that it leads to this. And that's, you know, that's just unfortunate byproduct of the way it has to be. I wonder if like, you would get not arguments because no one would argue this case. But I just wonder if these these uh, things, uh, phenomena are so deeply entrenched in the scientific system, if it's a similar type of, uh, it, it's a similar obstacle to change that people, I think, at even at the highest level, believe that, they, you know, the system, it kind of, it works the way it works. You know what I mean? Like, it's evolution, you know, it's like publication Darwinism or whatever the metric you want to talk about. <laughs> but I think that like in the military, if you say that stat to the military, a lot of people are like, yeah, it's the military. And I wonder how many people are like, yeah, it's science. You know what I mean? So, I, I mean, it's a scare. You're listening to all these statistics. And, I, and like you said, it's not just about finger wagging. But I wonder how I, I would love to, to get some metrics on how it's changing. Because like you said, it seems to be so painfully incremental, um, not in a good way, you know, slowly. Well, and I, I think, you know, again, sitting back and reflecting, um, think about any big social change um, that's happened in history, and they don't really happen overnight. Mm. They always take generations. I think the onus on us is just to say, this is the reality right now. How can we make this better for the next generation? And and I'll I'll mention, too, you know, I think it was, um, don't quote me on this, but I think it was beginning in 2016, the number of um, new postdoctoral um, hopeful graduate students um, weighted in favor of female over male candidates. So there's now more than 50% of the new PhD student body is female, um, which means you've got now a higher proportion of this gender at the lowest level and they need to have a career path forward. Um, what a great statistic to say we're perfectly primed to increase the number of women mm. at upper levels. They're coming into the field. It's not, we, we can't say that we have a lack of interest um, <laughs> feeding this, right? You know, yeah. so let's make sure we're talking right now about how those paths forward can be carved. Mm. Okay. 
Well, you're carving the path for sure, at least showing a successful path to your credit. Uh, so now we're going to move on to some science peripheral questions uh, at the end of the interview. Uh, the first one of that is what non-science book are you reading or have you read that's awesome and you'd recommend to our listening audience? Um, so I just finished uh, the fifth season by J.K. Nemesin. Um, mm. She is a um, young um, woman of color science fiction author. This is sort of her first, uh, I think it's her first go at this actually. I'm not totally sure, but, um, this is a series and this is book one. Um, I got it as a gift, uh, for Christmas. I'm, um, kind of a, I like to take my books like I take my movies all in one sitting. So I take them on long plane rides or, you know, when I find a very rare day that I can have to myself, I like to just sit down and read a book all in one go. Um, and this one was really fantastic in that capacity. I'm super excited about reading the second and third books in this series. Yeah, that's a book you can read in one go. Notably, she all three books in that series won the Hugo Award, which is unprecedented. Right. And, you know, she's amazing. That story is amazing. Having read it, uh, it only gets better. And for scientists in particular, I know it's kind of a non-science book, but it really has a scientific, you know, with, with um, sci-fi, it's all about world building, fantasy, same thing. And, and here she builds a really scientifically plausible world. You know, a, a famous uh, sci-fi author once said uh, that the, the whole world, in sci-fi in particular, in fantasy, it's all about the magic. The magic has to be plausible. And I think as a scientist, you can really appreciate it in the fifth season and the other two books is that it makes sense it all fits together. So yes. I recommend that book, too. It's so good. You're going to love the other two. Alabaster. Oh, he's the man. Um, yeah. All right. So next and last, uh, what was your greatest or most memorable science revelation or surprise so-called aha moment? Um, you know, I think um, it's not it's not so much an aha moment, but it's just that every time I get asked a similar like line of questions, I guess I always think about... Um, there was this, uh, it was the very first gene therapy clinical trial we were running. It was um, to give chemotherapy resistance to the blood um, of patients who had uh, stage four brain tumors that were resistant to standard therapy. So this is a patient group that has no, uh, really no treatment options. Um, and this, you know, because it's such a, these patients have such a poor prognosis, um, we were able to get to a clinical trial pretty quickly with, you know, preclinical data in, in mice and non-human primates. But when you put this in a person, there's always this moment where you're like, hmm. is this even going to work? <laughs> like, and I always remember sitting in front of the, the old fax caliber flow cytometer mm -hmm. machine mm -hmm. and uh, staining for the drug resistance protein that we had tried to put in. Uh, with gene therapy and it was the first week after the patient had been infused and he was doing okay remarkably okay and I get this blood tube and I'm like setting up for the flow and just like oh my gosh please let there be some protein in there <laughs> and then uh, running that blood sample um, it was along alongside uh, my my mentor in uh, gene therapy dr. Brian Beard and we're just both sitting there like holding the edge of our seats and the arms Whoa. of our chairs and the flow profile popped up huh. 
and it was like holy crap there's there's protein in there <laughs> like I can picture I, it now as the little cells start to colonize the plot up, yeah. and you see and you're like, <gasps> yeah, you see the shift in the plot and the oh, fluorescence. Man. And I, I think Brian actually said, holy crap, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was like, OK, you know, and that's just the one level of working. Right. And right. That oh, well, we then the, in and the rest, expressing. you're just yeah. counting your money for the rest. Right. I mean, that's uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> then you're going, OK, is that enough? to yeah. have a benefit in this chemotherapy treatment uh what's that going to look like next and so but that was the first one that was like yeah we are we're doing something really mystery science theater 3000 in my opinion <laughs> well that's the payoff right i mean it's funny that's the one you remember but i'm sure there were some kind of make it or break it results that didn't go your way if you're anything like me as a scientist i remember holding the edge of my seat and getting that crushing negative result uh and there's a few times where you get the positive and the positive stands out more than ever in that case where it actually has clinical import and like you said it's just the first question that's setting the stage for all these other important questions that must have been really really special uh, i envy you for that um jen thanks so much for joining us for the second time on the show we're gonna have to bring you back for a third pretty soon as you bring your gene therapy technologies to the world I'm expecting your body count in the positive to be above 100 million. Okay, you and George Bush, save millions <laughs> in Africa. Uh, thanks so much, really, though, for, uh, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, Dalen. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com to give us feedback or to suggest guests. We love it when you guys suggest guests because it shows us what you want to hear. And uh, a lot of the guests that we have on the show derive from brilliant suggestions. Okay, so give us a little feedback. We had a great guest today. Jen Adair, very inspiring. You know, there's a lot you don't know about Jen Adair. She came from very humble beginnings, shared with me her road to excellence that she's taken. It's very unconventional. If you can get a glimpse of that, I think it's an inspirational story, an inspirational guest who's just trying to cure everybody. I mean, is that so much to ask? If we can cure one, let's cure them all. Can't wait to see what she does next. This is a great chat and I think a good episode, guys. So check it out, tell your friends, and tune in in the next couple weeks. We're going to have something hot for you straight off the press. 